Have you ever had a wacky neighbor? I had a bit of a wacky neighbor a couple of years ago. Now, he wasn't a bad guy. He was nice and all, but it, I think it was his first home that he'd owned, and his yard was a train wreck. He'd gotten, he, when he was seeding his lawn, he'd gotten some discount seed that he knew a guy who knew a guy. It didn't even come in a bag. It was like, you know, he offloaded off a truck. Um, and the seed was impure and was just littered with crabgrass. So the guy ended up literally seeding his lawn with crabgrass. Um, it, it was pretty ugly. Well, you know, he'd asked somebody about what do you do about this and to get some herbicide, but he wasn't really experienced with herbicide and not really good at reading labels. So when he went into Canadian Tire and saw Roundup and it said general herbicide, he thought that meant it kills lots of different weeds. He didn't know that general herbicide means it kills everything that's green. And so he took this Roundup and he's spraying it all over his lawn, you know, trying to kill wherever there's crabgrass. And it ended up killing everything in all these patches. So there's all these patches of dead grass everywhere. I mean, it looked kind of like a leopard spots all over his lawn. And because he used so much of it, it was like that for like three years. Like it was horrible looking. Well, the children of Israel also had neighbors. Now, they were considerably worse than mine. They were people known as the Canaanites, um, and they were pagans. Now, you might think, hey, my aromatherapist is a pagan. She seems to be okay. These are different kind of pagans. The Canaanites, they're kind of like gangster thugs in a lot of ways. They were tough. They were mean. They were vicious. You looked at them the wrong way, and they would cut you. Uh, you didn't give them any guff. And they wanted to live their lives free of all inhibitions. They wanted to do whatever they felt like. They denied their eyes nothing. Whatever they want, they took. And their whole religion was revolved around empowering them to get what they want in life. Money, power, sex, doesn't matter that's how they practice their religion. And the religion involved the worship of the powers of creation and destruction, which worked out to be that they basically worshiped sex and death. And so when you wanted to get what you wanted from the gods, they'd often use this ritual sex magic. So if you can imagine going to church, I mean, we like sing and pray and stuff. But their church services were really more drunken, orgy kind of things. And if you wanted to get what you wanted, well, you'd pay money and you'd have sex with the priest or priestess, and that's how they did things. Now, you might think, oh, you know, if your whole religion and way of life is this drunken, orgy kind of thing, wouldn't that mean a lot of diseases? Yeah, yeah, it would mean a lot of diseases. Wouldn't that mean a, a lot of illegitimate children? It would mean a lot of illegitimate children. So would they have, like, lots of orphanages and stuff? No, they didn't. Remember, they worshipped sex and death? What do you do with all these extra kids? Human sacrifice to their gods. And so depending on the god they were worshipping, you would kill the child in different ways. But that's what they wanted. You wanted more wealth and power? Hey, just, you know, kill some children. Now, I don't know if you know this about God, but you go around killing kids, God's going to notice and you're going to find that a God of love can also be a God of wrath. And God had announced judgment on these people. That, you know, he was done with them. 
And when he brought the children of Israel into the land from being slaves in Egypt, he told them, I don't want you to have anything to do with these people. Absolutely nothing. I don't want you copying them. I don't want you worshiping their gods. Stay far away from those people. And the children of Israel were really, really obedient for a generation. And then the next generation, they're pretty obedient. They listened to their parents. They were warned, yeah, yeah, stay away from those pagans. But by the time the grandkids came around, yeah, those pagans are not so bad. Once you get to know them, they're all right. Why can't we be a little bit more tolerant? Why don't, can't we be a little bit more diverse and inclusive? Hey, a man can have more than one wife. Why can't a man have more than one God? Come on. And the children of Israel would start to do the same thing the pagans did and child sacrifice and the whole thing. Well, and God had told them, if you act like the Canaanites, I will judge you like the Canaanites. And God would send often an enemy army to come in and oppress the children of Israel. And once they had been enslaved by this enemy army, then they would repent. Oh, God, we're so sorry. We repent. We're sorry. Please save us. And God would send a savior. Now, he would give these special kind of heroic saviors that we call judges. Now, the Hebrew word for judge and the Hebrew word for savior is the same word. I think savior is a better word because none of these guys like operated a court of law. You know, that's not what they did. They were military leaders. But these judges would raise up fight off the enemies, set Israel free, and then for another generation, they would be faithful to God. And the next generation, pretty faithful to God. And the next generation, hey, those pagans aren't so bad anyways. And so this cycle repeated again and again throughout the generations 12 times. By the time they got to the 12th time, oddly enough, God had used this nation called the Philistines to conquer them. And the Philistines, they were different ethnically than, than the Israelites. And the average Philistine was about seven inches taller than the average Israelite. So they were big people. They had iron technology while the Israelites only had bronze technology. So they had stronger swords, better armor, sharper swords, lighter swords. Militarily, they just wrecked Israel and ruled over them for 40 years. But the Israelites didn't repent. They didn't ask for a savior. They didn't want a savior. But God decided in his mercy he was going to save them anyways. And there was a, a man and his wife who couldn't have kids. They were infertile. His name was Manoah. And God sent the angel of the Lord and spoke to Manoah's wife and said, you are going to have a son and he is going to be a savior and he will save you from the Philistines. But he's going to be a special kind of savior. He's going to be a holy man of God. And the Spirit of God is going to be on him his whole life. And he was going to be a Nazarite. Now, you might ask, what's a Nazarite? Well, in the law of Moses, there was a special vow you could do, and you'd usually do it for a year, called the Nazarite vow, where you would dedicate yourself to the service of God for a whole year. And there were three things you would do as a sign that you were following him. Sort of, there's a number of times we do things where it's an outward sign of an inward reality. So baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Um, a wedding ring is an outward sign of an inward reality. Well, the Nazarite vow had three outward signs of this inward reality. So the first sign is that you would not cut your hair. The second sign is that you would not touch alcohol. In fact, you weren't even allowed to touch a grape, uh, not even like the vine. And the third is you could not touch a dead body or a carcass. Those were the three rules. And it said that at the end of, even if you were 11 months 
you know, three weeks and six days through your vow, one more day to go, you're walking along and your friend beside you gets a heart attack, falls over dead and touches you as they're dropping dead, well, you have broken your vow because you're not supposed to touch something dead. And the Bible said that you would have defiled your hair. And so what you were supposed to do as a Nazarite is then shave your head and reset the vow, which means another year of following. Now, this Savior wasn't just going to be a Nazarite for a year, but it was going to be a Nazarite from birth for his whole life. He was going to be the special holy man of God. Well, nine months later, a son is born, and his name was Samson. And the Spirit of God was on him in a powerful way, and the blessing of God was on him in a powerful way, and he was going to be the Savior of the people. God was going to use one man to save a nation. He was going to use one man to judge a nation. In this case, the Philistines. Now, wouldn't it be odd if Samson, once he grows up, decides, you know what? I don't care about saving the Israelites. Israelites are losers. I'm going to hook up with the winners. I'm not going to do anything for the Israelites. In fact, I'm going to join the Philistines. Wouldn't that be odd? That's exactly what happened. Samson, the supposedly holy man, decides, yeah, I just don't care about the Israelites. And the first thing we see him do is go into the Philistine territory to look for girls. So he goes to this village of Timnah, and he finds a girl, and she is hot. He goes back home and says, Mom, Dad, I found the woman for me, you know, in Timnah. And his parents says, well, hold a second. Those are, you know, the baby-killing pagans? Um... We're not supposed to have anything to do with him. Why can't you date, you know, one of your own people, a, a Jewish girl? And Samson, Jewish girl? Short, dowdy. Ooh, I'm so oppressed. No, I want her. She's hot. And that's what the Bible says. That's, she looks good to me. That's the kind of guy Samson is. It's not like, it's like he's admiring her good set of virtues. You know, that's, that's how he rolls. Well, his parents, you know, after complaining a bit, eventually agree and give in to him. And so he's on his way to Timnah to kind of woo this girl. And he takes a shortcut through a vineyard. Now you might think, hold a second, isn't he supposed to be one of these Nazarite guys who like not even supposed to touch a grape? What is he doing in a vineyard of all places? Well, Samson does what he wants. He does whatever he feels like. And if he wants to go through a vineyard, he's going to go through a vineyard. He doesn't care. Now, once he abandons God's plan, he abandons God's protection. And as it turns out in that vineyard, there was a lion, and he got ambushed by a lion. Now, I'm not sure if you understand how dangerous these animals are. A lion is a 500-pound killing machine. It can take down an 800-pound wildebeest just like that. Back in the 1800s, when the British were building a railway through Africa, just two lions attacked them and killed 130 workmen. These are deadly. But the Spirit of God fell on Samson. Samson didn't have natural strength, that he was just, you know, really good at working out. No, he had supernatural strength right from God. And when that lion attacked him, Samson ripped that lion apart like a chicken wing. Well, Samson goes into Timnah, woos this girl, and they're going to have a wedding. And he goes back to get his parents and he's going to bring them to this wedding. Uh, and they're going to have this bachelor party that's going to last for seven days. Now, the, the Hebrew word for bachelor party means drinking party. 
And again, you're kind of thinking, hold a second, isn't this guy supposed to be some kind of holy man? He's not supposed to drink alcohol? Samson does whatever he feels like. That's his deal. Rules are for little people. Samson makes his own rules. And Samson, on his way to this, this party, um, it's been a couple months, and he wonders, I wonder if there's that lion's body is still there. And so he goes to where he saw the lion, and the carcass of the lion's still there, but now bees have made a hive in the lion carcass. And he's saying, like, bees, well, looks like there's honey there. I'm kind of hungry. So he goes to the lion carcass and, you know, scoops out a bunch of honey for himself. He ain't scared of no bees. Again, you might think, hold a second, wasn't, like, not touching dead bodies and carcasses, like, part of your vows? Samson does whatever he feels like. He makes his own rules. So he goes to the party, and it's a big deal. He has 30 group Philistine groomsmen. Now, as a pastor, I've seen, you know, a number of weddings in my time. The most I've ever seen is a wedding where there were six groomsmen. But here, it's 30. And he talks to his Philistine groomsmen, and he says, you guys want to have a friendly little wager? How about I give you a riddle? If you solve that riddle, I will give each of you a fine suit of clothes. If you don't solve it, each of you will give me a fine set of clothes. Well, the Philistines, they've been to drinking. They think they're pretty smart. Yeah, sure. Give us this riddle. So he says, here's the riddle. And he gives the riddle about the lion. He says, out of the strong, something sweet. Out of the eater, something to eat. Now, as someone who's trained in biblical languages, the ability to take a rhyme in Hebrew and make it rhyme in English is actually astonishing. That's really, really hard to do. Uh, I'm really, really impressed with those translators. But that was what the riddle was. Well, the Philistines have no idea what this could possibly mean. They're confounded. And they're puzzled. And the first day, they don't know answer. The third, second day, they don't know the answer. The third day, they don't know the answer. And they're worried. They're going to have to, they're going to lose this bet. They don't have a clue what he's talking about. And so they decide to approach Samson's bride. And they ask her, can you tell us what the answer is? And she says, I don't know what the answer is. Honestly, I don't. And so they just take her under their arm, grab a torch from a sconce in the wall, hold it up to her and say, if you don't tell us the answer, we're going to burn you and we're going to kill you and your whole family. Again, if you're thinking Philistines were nice people, they're not. Well, she decides she's going to try to find out that answer. Now, she doesn't tell her husband about the threat. Um, their relationship isn't exactly built on trust. Uh, it's built on other things. Um, so she goes to Samson and says, can you tell me what the answer is? And he says, no. And then she turns on the waterworks. You don't love me. You hate me. Tell me the answer. The fourth day, you don't love me. You hate me. Tell me the answer. The fifth day, the sixth day, you don't love me. You hate me. Tell me the answer. Finally, on the seventh day, Samson gives in and tells her the answer. And as soon as she hears the answer, the tears disappear. She brightens up and walks out. Five minutes later, the groomsmen all march in and say, we know what the answer is. What's stronger than a lion? What's sweeter than honey? And Samson says to them, if you didn't plow with my heifer, you wouldn't know the answer. And no, that doesn't sound more polite when you say it in Hebrew. Well, Samson is furious that his wife betrayed him and that he's been outsmarted. And he marches out of the wedding and he goes actually to the next uh, Philistine town 
one of their cities, and he just goes in and looks for the 30 richest guys he can find with the nicest set of clothes, and he straight up murders them, rips them apart, strips their bodies of the fine clothes, and then marches back to the wedding. Again, you might think, okay, you're ripping clothes off of dead bodies, you're not supposed to be touching dead bodies. Okay, Samson makes his own rules. Now, Samson's mission from God was to judge and to attack and drive out the Philistines. So when he came and he attacked 30 of their richest guys and does this massive damage against the Philistine ruling class, okay, that's a lot of damage. Was Samson trying to save Israel when he's doing this? No. He didn't care about Israel. It's all about his, himself. They offended him personally. But God's still using him to actually start to break the Philistine yoke. Well, he comes back, throws those, those clothes on the ground, fine, have your fine clothes, and then he just marches right out of the wedding, goes back home to Israel. Now, the wedding was in the spring. He doesn't come back to his wife until the fall. Six months later, he comes back. And he shows up, and um, he was a little bit romantic. He didn't bring flowers. He brought a goat. But, you know, here's a gift. You know, knocks on his father-in-law's door. Hey, here's a goat. Uh, where's my wife's room? I want to get busy. And his father-in-law says, uh, you can't. And he says, yes, I can. She's my wife. That's why we got married. And the father says, uh, we thought you hated her. You like stormed out of the wedding and you've been gone for six months. Um, I gave your wife away to one of the groomsmen. <laughs> Crazy angry. You did what? Samson storms out of there and he's going to get his revenge. And he comes up with the craziest plan I've ever heard. He goes out and captures a bunch of jackals. Now, a jackal is kind of a, like a Middle Eastern version of a fox, kind of a cross between a fox and a coyote, kind of an ugly animal. But he captures 300 of them, which is a pretty impressive feat. And then he ties them together in pairs by the tail. Now, I don't know how you're doing that with wild jackals. Um, well, the guy's pretty strong and pretty fast. So he ties them together and then ties torches to their tails. And he sends them off dragging these lit torches throughout the Philistine fields. And the fields are all on fire. Their wheat crop is destroyed. Their barley is destroyed. The Bible says their olive groves are all destroyed. Their vineyards are all destroyed. And Samson thinks this is hilarious. This is the funniest thing ever. And the Philistines, I mean, they're, they're devastated. Like, in, this is an agrarian economy. He just totally devastated their whole entire economy. And quite frankly, would have really damaged their military. Because an army runs on two things, gold and food. Napoleon said, an army marches on its belly. So the Philistines, their, their economy is shattered, their military might is shattered. Now, was he trying to save Israel and defeat the Philistines? No, this is all about personal vengeance. Samson does not care. Nevertheless, God is still kind of using Samson, idiot though he is, um, to set Israel free. Well, the Philistines, they're asking like, why are all our fields on fire? Why are we all destroyed? What's going on? And they find out, well, well Samson did this. And I think like, Samson, I thought he liked us. I thought he wanted to be one of us. I thought he was on our side. And then they find out about how his father-in-law had betrayed Samson and given away his bride. And so Philistines... Again, not nice people. 
they're going to get revenge on Samson's wife and father-in-law. And so they go to their house, shut them in that house, set fire to that house and burn them to death. Which is ironic because burning to death was what she was trying to avoid when she betrayed her husband in the first place. Well, if Samson was mad before, he is absolutely livid now. And he just goes out on this rampage throughout the whole Philistine countryside, attacking random people and killing hundreds. He's just this wrecking machine, bringing wrath and death and judgment on their whole land. Again, is he trying to be God's savior, pronouncing judgment on the Philistines and saving the Israelites? No, but that's what ends up happening. Well, the Philistines finally... You know, we need to get whatever remnant of an army we can get, and we need to stop Samson. But the Philistines are clever, and what they end up doing is actually going into Israel and invading them. And the Israelites are saying, hey, we're your slaves. We're your servants. We already give you all our food. We already give you all your money. We even give you our kids so you can sacrifice them. Why are you attacking us? We're on your side. And the Philistine says it's because Samson is attacking us. If you capture Samson and give him to us, We'll leave you in peace. So the Israelites raise an army of their own, 3,000 men. Now, are they going to use their 3,000 men army to try to fight the Philistines, to fight for their freedom? No. They're going to attack their own savior. They're going to attack their own hero. Because they didn't ask for a hero. They don't want a savior. And say, go go to Samson uh, and say, hey, we need to capture you and turn you over to the, the Philistines. And Samson says, okay. And he doesn't even put up a fight. Tie me up. Give me to the Philistines. So his own people betray him. His own people tie him up. And his own people hand him over to a foreign enemy for him to be killed. Wow. Well, Samson is now in custody of the Philistine army. And the Philistine army, they're cheering and they're celebrating. We finally have Samson. And they're marching back through the desert. And Samson sees a jawbone of a donkey on the side of the road. And he figures, huh. I think that will do. Snaps the rope, grabs the jawbone, and attacks the Philistine army. Now, the Spirit of God fell on him. God gave him supernatural strength, and he killed 1,000 Philistine soldiers with that jawbone. Philistine soldiers are flying everywhere and running for their lives. It's a massacre. And when he's done, he decides, you know what? I'm going to grab all these bodies and make a hill. So he stacks all the bodies on top of each other, and then he calls the hill Jawbone Hill because he thinks he's really funny. And then he writes a song. And the song is actually really clever in Hebrew. It's got like a triple play on words. I can't make it do a triple play on words in English. Um, But it's kind of with a jawbone of a donkey. I made donkeys out of them. But the word donkey also can mean pile of bones. So I mean, like, like it is quite clever. Just doesn't work in English. And then... And seriously, this is what the Bible says. When he'd finished his song, he does the mic drop with the bone. So he's singing the song with the jawbone, and when he's done, just... Because the guy does have a little bit of style, I'll give him that. But after he's done, he's pretty tired and thirsty. He's in the middle of the desert. It's really hot. And quite frankly, killing a thousand soldiers is a lot of work. Piling up a thousand bodies is a lot of work. And he doesn't have any water. And he's seriously dehydrated. He's starting to get heat stroke. And he realizes he's miles and miles away from any source of water. And Samson is actually scared for his life. That 
how stupid and ironic, I just attacked and killed a thousand men, and now I'm going to die of thirst? Well, for the first time in Samson's life, we see him praying to God. And he calls out to God, and he says, God, save me. This victory I just had was your victory. You deserve the credit, not me, which is the opposite of his song. Um, you deserve the credit. You're the one who gave your servant this strength. Save your servant. And oddly enough, God answers Samson's prayer. As it turns out, God is a God of second chances. And God causes a spring to emerge right there in the desert. And Samson doesn't die. And we're kind of thinking like, wow, Samson prayed to God, gave credit to God. God saved him. Samson has an opportunity to, to turn a new leaf, to be that holy man that he was always destined to be. Yeah, 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 that's not going to happen. Uh, the very next scene, Samson goes to the Philistine capital and goes to visit a prostitute. Um, now, the Bible is quite explicit here, but I'm going to keep this PG. Um, maybe they're playing checkers. So he went to play checkers with, uh, with the prostitute. People here in Gaza see this and feel like, our city is a walled city. Walls can keep people out, but walls can also keep people in. We've got him now. And so they set an ambush. They lock the city gates and they set an ambush. And they're thinking like, in, first thing in the morning, when Samson tries to leave, we've got him. Now, as it turns out, Samson got bored of checkers sooner than they thought um, and leaves around midnight. And he goes up to that gate. And yeah, the gate is locked. And these are big 700-pound gates. They're designed to withhold battering rams. And Samson... The Spirit of God comes upon him, given supernatural strength, and he doesn't just grab the gate, but the whole beams and frame that the gate's attached to, and lifts it right out of the ground and marches out carrying the gate. And he marches carrying that gate all the way to the city of Hebron in Israel, which is 30 miles away, and leaves the gate there. And he's Samson. He's going to do what he's going to do, and nobody is going to stop him just about invisible, invincible. Well, Samson eventually goes back to the Philistine land because he's looking for some action and he likes those Philistine ladies. And he meets this lady named Delilah. The name Delilah literally means the dark of night. And she is gorgeous. She's beautiful. And this is his new girlfriend. But the Philistines notice this. And the Philistine rulers, they had five principal cities. Philistine rulers took Delilah aside and said, if you can find out the secret to Samson's strength, we're going to give you 5,500 silver shekels. Now, I don't know when the last time you bought something in shekels. Um, what is 5,500 silver shekels? Well, one shekel is what a typical person would earn in a month. So 5,500 shekels is about 500 years worth of salary. In Canadian dollars, 25, 30 million dollars somewhere in that range. Okay, that's a lot of money. So she takes them up on this. She is going to sell this man out. Uh, he's cute and all, but money talks. And so she puts on her charms and, oh, Samson, you love me, don't you? Tell me this secret to your strength. Well, Samson's going to play this cat and mouse game with her. And so he says, oh, if you tied me up with seven bowstrings um, from bows that had never shot an arrow, I would be weak as a normal man. Well, 
They get to partying and drinking. Samson passes out, and she ties him up with seven bowstrings and then has Philistine soldiers riding, waiting in the wings to capture him. And she calls out, Samson, the Philistines are here to capture you. Samson wakes up from his slumber, snaps the bowstrings. Where are they? Well, she realizes he just lied to her. And Samson, he's not an idiot. He now knows that his girlfriend is trying to kill him. But Samson is invincible. He just laughs it off. We'll just continue to play this game. So the next time she says, Samson, you love me, don't you? Tell me the secret of your strength. And he says, well, if you tie me up with seven brand new ropes that have never been used, I'd be weak as an ordinary man. Sure enough, gets to drinking, passes out. She ties him up. Same soldiers come back. Samson, the Philistines are here. What? Snaps the ropes. She realizes he's still lying to her. You know, you love me, don't you? Tell me the secret. And he says, well, if you took my hair and wove it into a loom uh, and then stuck a pin in it, then I'd be weak as any man. So sure enough, next time she gets the opportunity, he passes out. She weaves his hair into a loom that you'd make a carpet out of and puts a pin in it. And then Samson, the Philistines are here. And he wakes up, just drags the loom, breaks the legs all around the room. What? Where are they? He's obviously as strong as he's always been. And then, and it's, it's sweet that the Bible says it this way. She says to him, where's the trust in our relationship? <laughs> and, and Samson, for the first time, tells her something true. He says, you know what? I am a special Israelite holy man. And one of the things I've actually never done in my life is I've never cut my hair. I have my hair long as a sign, you know, to my loyalty to, to my God. And then next time he passes out, and the Bible paints us this picture of Samson asleep with his head on her lap. And as he sleeps, a man comes out of the shadows and shaves off his head. And then once again, she says, the Philistines are here. And Samson gets up, what, where? And he's ready to fight him. And the Bible says Samson didn't know that the Spirit of God had left him. See, Samson had no idea there would be any consequences to cutting his hair. I mean, he'd broken the vow about touching alcohol. He'd broken the vow about touching dead bodies. He'd broken vows all over the time. There had never been any consequences for his actions. He had no idea that getting his hair cut was going to do anything. And he was ready to fight and found he could not overpower them. And they captured him and they tied him up. And then they gouged out his eyes and blinded him. They took him to a mill. An ordinary at a mill, you'd have like an ox that would be tied to a beam and he would move this big stone to grind out grain. Well, they get rid of the ox and have Samson tied to that beam. And they're going to treat him like an animal. And he's going to grind their grain. The Philistines have won at last. They have this victory. So much for the Savior of Israel. The Bible said after a while, Samson's hair began to grow back. Now, remember what the law of Moses said about the Nazarite vow? That if you broke your vow, you would have defiled your hair. And what you were supposed to do is shave your head and reset the vow. Now that Samson is threshing grain, is he drinking alcohol? Is he touching dead bodies? Is he cutting his hair? For the first time in his life, he's actually keeping his vow. Not intentionally. Well, as it turns out, a few months later, the Philistines are going to have this massive celebration at their main temple. And they invite all the elite, literally thousands of people. Their kings, their rulers, their military commanders. Thousands of people are going to celebrate at this temple. And 
It is Philistine worship. It's going to be a giant drunken orgy. And the Bible says, and they were drunk. Shock. Um, and then they had this idea, why don't we drag out Samson to be our clown? And so we can parade him in front of us and we can make fun of him because we have defeated him at last. And so they drag out Samson to make fun of him and to mock him. And Samson says to a, a young boy, can you put my hands against the center pillars of the temple just so I can steady myself? And the boy does that. And Samson is there, arms outstretched. And we see him pray for the only second time in his life. And he prays to God, God, give me my strength back so I can save my people. No, that's not what he prays. He prays, God, give me my strength back so I can get revenge for my eyes. But God answered that prayer, gave Samson his strength back, and he pushed out those pillars. The whole temple collapsed, and 3,000 of the ruling elite of the Philistine nation are destroyed, and Samson dies with them. Samson dies, arms stretched out as a last act of self-sacrifice. And the Bible says more people died at Samson's death than ever in his life. And the yoke of the Philistines was broken. Israel was set free. God used one man to break one nation. God used one man to set one nation free. Now, there's things we can learn from Samson's story. One is, let's be really honest. When you look at Samson's character, I'm a little bit like Samson, and so are you. Every single one of us at one time have wanted to live our lives so we can do whatever we feel like, to do whatever we want, to follow our plan, to do things my way for my benefit. Now, we may not do what Samson did, but sometimes we dream and wish we could. I mean, how many of us have ever fantasized about being really wealthy so we could do whatever we feel like, that we could have every appetite satisfied with no limits? And how many of us, let's be honest, we all know that if you really want to get rich, it's probably going to involve a lot of hard work and sacrifice. So does our fantasy include hard work and fantasy or hard work and sacrifice? Now, how do we fantasize about getting rich? The lottery. How many of us have spent hours and hours fantasizing about the lottery so we can live Samson's life and have all our appetites filled so we could do whatever we feel like? Man, it's all of us. But what we can see in Samson's life is living a light life where we're held captive by our appetites is not a life of freedom. It's a life that ends in slavery. We were meant to have appetites, not to have appetites have us. We either control our appetites or our appetites will control us. We're given a choice in life. We can serve our appetites or we can serve God. But serving our appetites does not give us freedom. It gives us slavery. We can also learn a few things about the character of God in this story. One, yeah, God's really powerful. He can save an entire nation with just one person. God is powerful. He can judge an entire nation with just one person. But also, God is a God of mercy. God is a God of second chances. He's consistent in that. Maybe we have second chances too. Because as it turns out, Samson wasn't the only savior that God sent to Israel. 1,100 years later, God sent another savior who was a lot like Samson, but different in some important ways. Just like Samson, he had a miraculous birth that was announced by an angel where an angel spoke to a young girl named Mary and said, you are going to have a son. And his name is going to be Jesus, which literally means God saves. And just like Samson, the spirit of God was on Jesus his whole life. Just like Samson, Jesus had amazing, miraculous, superhuman powers. Unlike Samson, Jesus didn't use his abilities for himself. He used his ability for others to heal the sick, 
to give sight to the blind, to allow the lame to walk. Just like Samson, his people weren't looking for a savior. Just like Samson, his people didn't want a savior. Just like Samson, his people weren't repenting. Just like Samson, God gave them a savior anyways. Just like Samson, it was Jesus' own people who captured him. Just like Samson, it was his own people who tied him up. Just like Samson, Jesus didn't fight back. And just like Samson, he was handed over to foreign invaders to be killed. Just like Samson, Jesus would die a self-sacrificial death, arms stretched out. Unlike Samson, Jesus' last prayer was very different. Where Samson died, Lord, let me die with these people. Give me revenge. Jesus died saying, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Samson was a political savior. Jesus saved us from our sins. Samson defeated his enemies by killing them. Jesus saves his enemies by redeeming them. See, every single one of us have been going down our own road. Every single one of us have been living our lives the way we want to, doing things my way, and it's ended up right here. What Jesus offers us is an opportunity to turn around and do things his way, to follow him, to take our lives, our hopes, and our dreams, our sorrow and our shame, and place them in his hands and ask him to make us into someone new, to ask us to make us into the people that we were always destined to be, to follow him even when he leads places that are scary, even when he leads places we don't understand, to put our trust in him, and he has promised to make us new. So we would live a life that where there was hatred, we would bring love. Where there's brokenness, we would bring healing. Where there's darkness, we'd bring light. Where there's rejection, we would bring acceptance. Where there's strife, we would bring reconciliation. To live that kind of heroic life that we were all destined to live. He gives us that opportunity. And I'm going to give you that opportunity. That no matter how many times you screwed up in your life, you have that opportunity right now. Now I'm going to lead you through a powerful prayer that can change your life and change your destiny. Now this prayer, it isn't magic words. We're not casting a spell. We're not witches. But it's a real conversation and a vow to the living God who's right here with us. And what we're going to pray is, God, I've screwed up. There's a lot of things I've done that I regret. There's a lot of things I know I should have done that I didn't do. And I'm sorry. I'm going to abandon my way of doing things and I'm going to put my trust in you. And I'm going to follow you wherever you lead me. So I want everybody right now to bow their heads and close their eyes. And I want you to repeat with, after me out loud. Dear God, I know I've messed up. I've done things I'm not very proud of. And I failed to do things I know I should have. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I want to follow you. Take my life. Take my hopes and my dreams. Take my sorrows and my shame. And make me into someone new. Lord, forgive me. Lord, heal me. Lord, send me. 